Um, we're doing a series here that is called Justified. Everybody say Justified. Now, we're not using that in the sense of someone who is trying to justify their wrongdoing, but in the biblical sense of the word, justified is a legal term which means to acquit, to be found not guilty. And when you look at the, the graphic on the screen here, you see the scales of justice and you see the gavel. You think about a judge in the courtroom who bangs the gavel and pronounces not guilty. You've been justified. The scripture says that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have peace with God. Everybody say peace. That's what the world's looking for. They think they're looking for happiness, but the truth is they're looking for peace. And that's only found in one source, and his name is Jesus Christ. So this morning, we unashamedly carry that message. What a beautiful name. What a wonderful name. What a powerful name it is. By the way, give, give our praise team a hand. Um, wow. This, it, this music sounded amazing this morning, and I, I'm, I just, in a, in a good sense of the word, I'm so proud of them for their hard work and, and giving of their time and their talent, their, their gifting, their treasure, their energy to be able to bless the presence of God in this place and to be able to bless you as we gather together and worship. And uh, so grateful for them. As we, we jump in, I am not going to do any extensive review. All of these messages are free to you. They don't cost you anything. If you have any kind of a computer or tablet or even a cell phone, you can jump onto our website, which is now mobile-friendly, and you can listen to through your, through your smartphone or through any other device. Our messages are there in terms of this week's sermon is always posted. It doesn't cost you anything. There's no subscription. If you're an iTunes person on your Apple, uh, on your iPhone, you can subscribe and it will automatically update to our podcast, which goes up uh, each week and is fed out of our, our message archive. So that's available to you a number of different ways. Uh, we have message notes that are printed for you there as well. And if you would look around your seat, you probably picked up a whole bunch of paperwork and you're wondering, what is all this about? Find the blank Find the blank 3x5 card, if you would find that blank 3x5 card, and we're going to add to our scripture memory cards this week. Last week I asked you to learn Galatians 3.11. Does anybody know what that verse is? What does Galatians 3.11 say? The just? Say it louder. Come on, the just? Shall live by faith. Okay, that's the phrase that grabbed a German monk in the early 1500s and it really came to a head in 1517, October 31st, All Hallows' Eve, which sort of evolved and morphed into what we know as Halloween. It had nothing to do with ghosts and goblins particularly at the time. It was the evening before All Hallows' Day or All Saints' Day. If you've come from an Anglican or Episcopalian, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Orthodox, some of the more liturgical uh, denominations, then you're familiar with All Saints Day, November 1st. Every year we honor those who have been heavily influential in being uh, contributory or contributors to the faith that we now know to be a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we recognize their contribution. Some were martyred. Some had great uh, emphasis in terms of influence in their communities or even in the world. And so this morning as we jump in, the title of the message today of this number two, message number two in this series will be nine messages, but number two is where we are today. It's called The Cross Changes Everything. Say that with me. The Cross Changes Everything. Our series text, you've basically already quoted the real 
uh, nutshell version of it, kind of the abbreviated version, is the just shall live by faith. Let's go ahead and get the extended. Find a screen and read it with me, please, if you would. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say it is through faith that a righteous person has life. That's the NLT. We use that New Living Translation because it's really kind of more 21st century. It's not Elizabethan English which the old King James gave us and basically a lot of words that are more than 300, 400 years old and nobody says anymore and then we have to take 20 minutes out of the message and explain what all those words mean. So we go to a newer translation so that we can have a broader understanding in our communication that when I say something, we read that, we all have the same understanding. Okay? Somebody said one time, is the myth of communication is that it happened. And if you'll think about it, you'll get that in a minute. <clears throat> because too many times, someone who's communicating says one thing, and there are four or five different ways that it gets interpreted in, the, in a room, in any given room. And so we want to be able to zero in as much as possible and be clear and concise. And so our text today, our message text, this is your memory verse for this week. We give you a, a free 3 by 5 card. There should be a pen in your seat too. Take that 3 by 5 card and I want you to write out this memory verse today. It is Galatians chapter 2. We'll have one memory verse from every chapter. And the chapters that we preach two messages, you'll have a couple of memory verses. Each one memory verse a week. Okay. So here it is in Galatians 2.20. I memorized this in the fall of 1979 when I was a freshman at Arkansas State University. Putting it on a 3 by 5 card just like I'm having you do. And uh, wa walked out to class and between classes just kind of looked at it and began to put it into my heart and to memorize it. It says it this way. Read it out loud. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, when I learned it, 30, what, eight years ago, I guess? 30, yeah, it's almost, my goodness, almost 40 years ago. 79 to 2019 would be 40, that's right. So 30, 38 years ago. 38, thank you, appreciate it. I'm not a math major, okay, forgive me. <laughs> um, it was in the King James. And it says, For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, there it says, in this earthly body. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So almost as easily understandable as that. But this one is the one I want you to take time. Just in the next minute or two as I'm talking to you, go ahead. You don't have to pay attention to every word I'm saying. But look at the screen. Write it down. My old self has been. Look at that. Everybody say past tense. So it's not something I'm waiting to see happen, but it actually happened when Jesus was crucified. My old self was crucified with him. My old self, my old life has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. Think about this verse that is so amazingly powerful that you've been infected with the germ called Jesus. You've got something on the inside of you that's now contagious that cannot die. As a matter of fact, he already died and is, he rose from the dead. So he can't be defeated. He can't die. He can't fail. He can't lose. He's already run every race and won every race and already whipped every enemy. Come on, somebody. 
that same source of life is now walking around inside you and walked in the room with when you came in this morning. So much of what we live out of that produces insecurity and uh, a low self-esteem and a, a sense of less than, uh, an unworthiness, a no good kind of concept about ourselves is that we have never stopped to meditate on and renew our thinking in the power of this verse. Christ lives in me. Look at your neighbor right now and tell them, say, Christ lives in you. Now, let me just say this. If you're a guest this morning and if, if, maybe if you don't even know Jesus, you're a seeker and we're thrilled that you're here. Uh, it, with all, all due respect and no offense, that is not the case. It's, it's, it's when you trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and, and, and you lean into Him to trust Him for your life. It's not just Southern Bible Belt religion about I trust Jesus so when I die I'm going to heaven. Yes, that's, that's true. But it's about trusting Him to live right now. Come on somebody. Christ lives in us. Do you hear what we're saying? That is... That is earth-shaking. That's world-changing. That's behavior-modifying. That's transforming power in its ability when I begin to think about the, the weight of those words that I'm saying. Christ lives in me. It's not my old self that's motivating me anymore, that's animating my life, but Christ lives in me, so I live in this earthly body, in this flesh, by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Man, so... If, if you're finished writing that verse down for this week, say amen. I know it's a little bit lengthy, but I really challenge you. Uh, don't just go out of here and say you're going to do it today and then, then not. Because if you'll start to put the word of the Lord down in your heart, you will start to recognize a dynamic. Matter of fact, use the word dynamo, which is a machine that produces power. And so faith starts to grow. You're, you're, you, you feel a kind of an energy because the Spirit of the Lord begins to work on the inside of you because you're, you're, you're bringing to the forefront of your thinking the Word of God. And the Word of God has power because the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So when you start to put it first place in your life and let it have final authority in your life, you start to see things changing because it alters the way you think. The Bible says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And how we do that, we get in the Word and let it wash over us and begin to change how we think. I want to pray with you this morning before we move any further in this message right now. This is our text, and let's go before the Lord. Gracious God, thank you today for Jesus. Thank you that Jesus died for our sins just as you had planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. Jesus, you're our hope, you're our peace. Lord, you're our Savior, you're our God, our King, our guide, our provider, our healer, our redeemer, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. The titles don't stop. There's no way to adequately describe who you are in one sentence. It takes books Lord, it takes eternity with voices of praise to declare the goodness and the glory of God. I ask you today, I implore you, I beg you, help me to be clear, help me to be concise. Let understanding be the portion. Let it, let it belong to and be the possession of every person in this room. Break through darkness, shine through darkness and break through bonds, bondages and chains. 
Lord, on the hearts and the minds, the physical bodies of my brothers and sisters sitting in this room. Somebody in here needs Jesus. Everybody in here needs Him in some kind of way, but somebody in this room needs Him as Savior because they're lost. God, I ask you today that you would, by the Holy Spirit, search this room and you would find one. You would find two. You would find, Lord, as many as are here that will hear your word and respond. I just acknowledge before you that I desperately need you and apart from you I know that I'm absolutely nothing and can do nothing but I thank you that with Jesus I can do everything you've called me to do and be because Christ lives in me. Lord, let deep, let the deep Christ in me call to the deep Christ in my brothers and sisters. Let the anointing of God teach. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. It is in the name of Jesus, the powerful name that we pray and all of God's people said. Amen. We have one thing that I want to communicate to you this morning. One thing in this message that I want to bring to bear. Find a screen, read it out loud with me please. Religion enslaves and demands us to be conformed. Gospel delivers and empowers us to be transformed. The first brings, the latter brings. Get it one more time. Say it like you mean it. Come on. Religion enslaves and demands us to be conformed. Gospel delivers and empowers us to be transformed. The first brings, the latter brings life. All of God's people. Amen. 1517, October 31st, a German monk has a revelation from God out of the book of Habakkuk, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, the just shall live by faith, and he nails 95 theses are basically arguments that he's dealing with in terms of the power of the Pope, the power of the governments of Europe, particularly in Germany. Speaking truth to power, kind of as one of the very first revolutionaries, one of the first certainly begins and is the primary voice of what we call the Protestant Reformation. We're protesting something. We are, as evangelical believers, we are called Protestants. Now, with all of my heart, I, I believe that God desires to heal the rift that has existed these 500 years between Roman Catholics and Protestants because there's been a lot of reformation that has taken place in terms of really understanding the real key of what took place was this issue of justification by faith. And I can't stop there. I need to include another word because everybody believes in justification by faith. Orthodox, Roman Catholics... Protestants, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, going on and on and on. It was really since the Reformation that all of this splintering of various sections or denominations began to arise. Some call that a curse in terms of the unity of the body of Christ. Others call it a blessing. And I think it probably has aspects of both. Uh, Calvin, who was a Reformation brother to Luther, not, not biologically related, but would actually be born much later uh, in Luther's life, actually right around his death, and then Calvin comes along and becomes the next generation's primary reformer. John Calvin, as you've heard of, gave us the phrase Semper Reformanda. And Now we've all heard the marine slogan, Semper Fidelis. Does anybody know what Semper Fidelis means? Really? Nobody knows? Thank you. Always faithful. Semper means always Fidelis, fidelity, means faithful. Everybody say always faithful. So if semper fidelis means always faithful, semper reformanda means always reforming. So it's a Latin phrase that became popular during the Reformation. 
Most of Europe doesn't speak Latin. They're illiterate. They're uneducated. Luther has the credit to his charge, historical record, for translating the Bible into the common people's German vernacular and gets it printed and begins the process of educating the peasants so that they can get the Word of God into their hearts and challenging them to memorize the Word 500 years ago just like I am this October the 8th in 2017, 500 years later. He knew it then, I know it now. If you would get the Word in your heart, it has the ability to change and transform your life. Not like religion, the Bible says the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So when you have a living relationship with Jesus and not just a dead traditional religion, because religion enslaves and demands that we conform, and along with it, it does not bring any power to do it, but then condemns you when you can't get it done. That's what the the legalistic system does to you. No matter what flavor or denominational variety or what kind of uh, coat or robe of righteousness it has on it in in, in its self-promotion. Anything apart from Jesus is just basically advice on how you can self-improve. But the gospel is different in that it gives you, it brings with it the power, everybody say grace, With the grace of God comes the favor and the ability of God to begin to produce the desired result. The gospel is the good news that Jesus presently, right now, is King of kings and Lord of lords. And because of His finished work, He lived a perfect sinless life. He died in your place instead of you so that you could be freed from this present evil world in which we now live. You could be freed from the influence of its power over your life while still living among those. Walking as light in the middle of the darkness. Somebody say amen. So Peter uh, and Paul and James and John are a couple of names that we recognize in the New Testament period. Disciples of Jesus. Paul wasn't. He later is basically transformed after an encounter, a living encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. He is a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Philippians 3 says he's born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. Everything that was required to be a good Jewish person, Paul was all of that and kept the law to a T, to a jot and to a tittle. I's dotted and T's crossed. Jots and tittles taken care of. Paul is doing everything he has in the ability and does a good job at it. And he is so zealous for his Jewish law and his Jewish way, he hates this new group of people called the Way who believe in a risen, resurrected Savior by the name of Jesus Christ that, by the way, this new group is declaring is now Lord, which that was a political crime because in those days, Caesar is kurios, Caesar is Lord. In the Roman Empire, Caesar is Lord. So when when Christians who were first called that at Antioch, by the way, that's just kind of something that man called them. The Bible never says go and make Christians. It doesn't say go and make Baptists or go and make Pentecostals or go and make whatever your favorite denomination is. It just says go and make, it doesn't say even go and make believers. It says go and make disciples. Everybody say followers of Jesus. Now, to be a disciple means I follow Jesus not just knowing that I've got a trip to heaven and a, and a ticket on the train to glory that's ready to be stamped or, 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 or punched. But it basically means that every day of my life I'm learning to walk with the Lord and listen to Him and look at His Word and, and pay attention to do what Jesus does. Somebody say amen. 
And so it's about being a Jesus follower and being a disciple. And those disciples were called Christians at Antioch. And Paul, who at this time is called Saul, his Jewish name, which by the way uh, means demanded. It's kind of an in-your-face, obtrusive kind of a concept. His name means demanded. As opposed to his new name once he comes to Christ, Paul means little or restrained. Isn't it amazing how when Christ comes in your heart, He can give you a whole new name and a whole new nature. You're not up in somebody's face making a legalistic, pharisaical demand, but you're coming in a a humble, little, restrained kind of spirit. That's the difference in the name Saul and the name Paul. And so Paul is transformed by an experience with Jesus. We see his testimony in Acts chapter 9, and he begins the process of learning what the gospel is. Paul takes two chapters in the book of Galatians to establish the validation of this message called the gospel, the gospel of grace that he is called to preach to the Gentile nations. And don't be offended by the word Gentile. Everybody in here who is non-Jewish is a Gentile. Now, the word Gentile very simply just means the nations. Ethnos, it means sometimes it's translated heathen. Now that probably offends you, but I want to tell you, if you don't know Jesus, just face it, you're a heathen. We're all heathen. We've all been heathens. We've all done heathenistic things, craziness, nonsense. Uh, In the name of life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. In the name of trying to pursue the American dream. In the name of trying to find, uh, you know, get get your groove back or get your thrill on or whatever you do. Whatever your flavor is. Sex, drugs, rock and roll and all the above or none of the above or whatever it was. Or whether you were born in a church pew. How many of you know you need saving just like the one born in the gutter? Because if, unless you're born again, I don't care if you grew up in church, you can be the most self-righteous religious person and is far away from God, matter of fact, farther away from God than the person in the gutter that's bound in all kinds of sinfulness because at least they have the sense enough to know that they're a sinner and need. They're lost. They know they need help. What's dreadfully tragic is that the person who's been raised in church their whole life but doesn't have a living relationship with Jesus is they think that they got their act together and they think they got it right. And because of that, they walk around with a judgmental, look down your nose, holier than thou, hyper-pious kind of an attitude toward everybody that comes in going, well, looky here, who do they think they are? I just want you to know that's not welcome in this place. We're all broken. We're sinful. We need help. The pastor is the first at the line. I need help. I need Jesus more than I've ever needed him before in my life. The only perfect person in this church is Jesus, and that's who we've come to celebrate. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. You say that pretty often, Pastor. Yes, because you have to be sure you keep building that kind of culture, a culture of grace. The church is to be a hospital where sick, broken people can come and get healed. Now, you don't just stay sick in the hospital your whole life. It's to be a school where you can get trained and raised up and strengthened and equipped. And finally, it's to be an army that marches out of this room into this community on mission to be light in the middle of darkness, to be salt in the middle of all the corruption in the earth around us. If you believe what I'm saying, give me an amen. Come on, it ain't going to hurt you. Paul looks for apostolic agreement. And he goes back to Jerusalem. In Galatians chapter 2, 1 through 10, it says, Then 14 years later I went back to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas, and Titus came along too. Titus is a young Greek son in the Lord to Paul. You know, like one of these teenagers around here, you know, young guy that basically Paul has sort of trained up and mentored and discipled. 
And so Titus is a young Greek guy who is going to be a test case because he's going to talk about him here just a little bit. He says, verse 2, I went there because God revealed to me that I should go. And while I was there, I met privately with those considered to be leaders of the church and shared with them the message that I'd been preaching to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the heathen. I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement. Everybody say agreement. This is important. He's looking for apostolic agreement because God will never reveal something to one person that he does not at the same time in the proximity of that one give you somebody else to be a witness. Come on, when he called a young virgin that was 14, 15 years old and by immaculate conception, by the hovering presence of the Holy Spirit causes her to have inside her womb the very Son of God and she gets pregnant with God at the same time, she goes and stays with a cousin who not, is not pregnant by immaculate conception, but it's, it's really no less of a miracle because Elizabeth, her cousin, Mary's cousin, is way too old to have a baby, and Zechariah is too old to help her get in that state. This is before you had little blue pills. And basically... Everybody awake this morning? It's, everybody say, it's still a miracle. <laughs> Elizabeth gets pregnant. She's 70 plus years old and she's going to have their very first baby. And guess what? Mary comes and Elizabeth's pregnant and Mary is pregnant. And when they, come, when they stand together in each other's presence, the babies in both wombs leap. Because there's life that's calling out to life. That's why we sing that song, Deep Calls to Deep. There, God will always put somebody in your proximity, in your relationship network that God's doing something very similar if not the same thing in so that somebody's got something in the womb of their spirit that will leap at what they see God doing inside your heart. Because God will never isolate somebody by themselves and give them a revolutionary message to reform the church or to change the world without giving you every Mary has an Elizabeth. Come on somebody, help me preach a little this morning. I didn't even in my notes. My goodness. I just want you to know, I went home and I grieved last Sunday because I was so long. I preached 20 minutes over, and I guaranteed the worship team today that if I go over, I give them $20 a piece. That's eight of them. That's 160 bucks. So hang with me. I'm going to do it today. I don't care if you believe it or not. I'm going to do it. Are you there? And I shouldn't have told you because you won't even listen to my message now. You're going to be watching your watch going... Is the pastor going to be 160 bucks lighter than he is at the end of this service? It wasn't a bet. It's just motivation for me to be clear. Everybody say concise. All right, here we go. He says, I wanted to make sure that we were in agreement for fear that all my efforts had been wasted and I was running the race for nothing. King James says, I was running the race in vain. All this preaching of grace... The Judaizers have come into the Galatian churches and he's, they're telling all these new Gentile believers, if you're really going to be a Christian, you have to become a Jew first and you have to get circumcised. You've got to make sure that you're bearing the same mark in your body that we bear in ours as Jewish males. And so this is what he says in verse 3, And they supported me and did not even demand that my companion Titus be circumcised, though he was a Gentile. So Paul goes back to Jerusalem, the very first church where everything starts from, the source out of which the whole message of the gospel is emanating to the rest of the world. 
He said in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, After the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall receive power and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts. And like a pebble dropped into a pond, the circles, the concentric circles just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It started in the church in Jerusalem, then to the countryside of Judea, and then Samaria, everybody say Israel, okay, and then the uttermost parts of the world. So it all begins in Jerusalem, so Paul goes back to the Jerusalem and we read the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where they have a big, huge argument over what it means to be Christian now. Do you have to be a Jew and keep the law in order to become a good Christian? And they argued all that out and that's a whole separate message and I don't have time, I'm not going to chase that rabbit this morning. And they came to the conclusion that circumcision was no longer a requirement. That was the sign of the covenant of the Old Testament. Now this New Testament sign is what Paul calls the circumcision of the heart or water baptism. You bury that old man that we just confessed in Scripture that was crucified at the cross of Calvary with Jesus. My old self was crucified with Christ. It is not I who, I don't live any longer, but now Christ lives in me, we said. Okay? Verse 4, even that question came up only, that is the circumcision of Titus, whether he should be circumcised. The question came up only because some so-called believers there, false ones really, the Greek says false brothers, in other words, people who are acting like they're your brother, but they're really not. I mean, you know, everybody's got some of them in your network too. Don't look around and identify them at this point, but everybody's got some. And I don't mean that. I think everybody in here is a seeker. We're, we're, we're trying to be true to God. But in your extended network, you've got some false brothers. Somebody say amen. It says, they were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom. Everybody say freedom. Why is he pressing freedom? Paul is a freedom fighter because he knows that religion enslaves and demands that we conform. You've got to look just like me. You've got to bear in your body, brother. All you men, you've got to look just like me as a faithful Jew. If you're going to be a Christian now, I know that Jesus is Yeshua HaMashiach. He's the Messiah. But you've got to be circumcised like me. And so all of these Judaizers are telling everybody, you've got to go and you've got to, you got to have this little surgery and get everything fixed so you look like the rest of us. You're going to have to conform. And this makes us uncomfortable. We don't like to talk about these things in open settings in church. Men and women are sitting here, young teenagers, and I'm not going to be crass in any kind of way, but I'm going to tell it like it is. We're going to get real. Now, let me just say this. These folks have been sent in to spy. That means somebody's been sent into the latrine with a side eye trying to check out what everybody looks like. I'm going to let that one just kind of wander around the room a minute. This was before you could go in the men's room and thank God somebody came up with these little partitions that are in between. Now you can go in and do your business and and still some folks are kind of occasionally, I want to go, hey brother, what you looking for? <laughs> That's in your Bible. They came in to spy on us. In other words, they're looking around trying to check everybody out. These people that are confessing Christ, do they have that old covenant mark in their body? Well, the only way you get a chance to see is if you're going to be trying to check out somebody. I can't believe this, that pastor is saying this in church. On Galatians 1, right there in your Bible, read it. Galatians 2, it says, Even that question came up only because some so-called believers, false ones, that were sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. 
Verse 5, but we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. And the leaders of the church had nothing to add to what I was preaching. By the way, parenthetically, Paul says, by the way, their reputation as great leaders made no difference to me. For God has no favorites. Basically, I love this. Paul is saying, look, I'm not impressed by Peter, James, and John. I've met the same Christ. I met him just like you did. And I'm going to tell you, ain't nobody any more special than anybody else. God has no favorites. Come on. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. He says, didn't make any difference to me. And he says, verse 7, Instead they saw that God had given me the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as he had given Peter the responsibility of preaching to the Jews. For the same God who worked through Peter as the apostle to the Jews also worked through me as the apostle to the nations, to the heathen, to the Gentiles. In fact, James, Peter, some translations say Cephas, that's his Greek name, so it's the same, the apostle Peter, and John, who were known as pillars of the church, recognized the gift God had given me and they accepted Barnabas and me as their co-workers. They encouraged us to keep preaching to the Gentiles while they continued their work with the Jews. Their only suggestion was that we keep on helping the poor, which I have always been eager to do. So Paul is basically saying, look, all you Galatian churches, I came to you and I witnessed to you on my first missionary journey and, and Christ got established among you. you trans, your lives were transformed because you trusted in Christ in, by faith alone. And now these people have come in to spy on you and try to tell you that you've got to go back to some kind of old system of the law. That basically Jesus has put a final nail in the coffin to and fulfilled it and says it's finished. And they're trying to make you do something that, that no longer the gospel doesn't even require. Because religion enslaves us and demands that we conform. Now, in the Bible Belt, it's not about circumcision, but it's about, you know, how you dress and, you know, your church attendance and how you vote whether you're a card-carrying, you fill in the blank. If you're in a white evangelical church, then you better vote Republican. And if you're in a black church, you better vote Democrat. How many of you know I'm telling you the truth? And I don't want to make this thing political, but in the Bible Belt, it's not circumcision anymore, but if you're really a Christian, you have to think this way, look, look this way, live this way, do this. How many of you know none of that is biblical? Help us. Come on, somebody, help me just a little bit this morning. <coughs> Because <coughs> your answer is not in any of those things. Trump is not the Messiah and Obama was not the Messiah. Neither one of them are the Messiah. Come on, Jesus is the only Messiah. Somebody say amen. I have a four-minute clip that I want you to see really quickly. And I want you to watch. This is a 2012 rendition, a movie of Martin Luther standing before the powers of Rome. In Germany, it was called the Diet of Worms. Worms actually is a city in Germany. And a diet doesn't mean that he's eating little crawly things, but it's just basically the name of a certain kind of Catholic council. So if you would play the clip, Martin Luther is being questioned whether or not he's going to recant what he believes. Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. 
first of those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truth. He is not here to make speeches, only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the Pope's past and present. No! Through the laws of the Pope and the doctrines of men, the consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess that I've written too harshly. I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, right, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Here it is, right here. Yes or no? Will you recant or will you not? desire a simple reply. I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Yes. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not. Recant. Here I stand. Conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot, I will not. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. <clears throat> In 
Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul has to confront Peter himself because Peter has come to Antioch in verse 11. He says, I had to oppose him. Paul says, I had to oppose him face to face for what he was doing was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism. Everybody say, afraid of criticism. Come on, how many times have we feared that we would be rejected or we wouldn't be accepted if we stepped up and said, wait, this is not right. And so Paul confronts Peter to his face. It says he was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of the circumcision. And I'm not going to take time to read the rest of this text, but Paul had to remind Peter, you who now believe in the saving grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ have gone back to the old ways and you've let, fe- you've let peer pressure become fear pressure to make you do something that you know better than than you should be doing. You, Peter, can't do this. And he was slipping back into his old ways. How often it is. How easy it is. Because change is not easy. Change is difficult. And that's the reason we have to go back to the Word on a regular basis. The way Calvin said, semper reformanda, always reforming. God, what I'm believing right now, is that really rooted and based in Scripture? And when I can embrace the the freedom that comes from the good news, the gospel that delivers me and empowers me to be transformed and I can turn my back on any religious expression that tries to enslave me or demand that I be conformed to anybody else. I remember sitting before a friend in this community a number of years ago who pastors another church, I'm not going to mention the name, but we were talking about facial hair. And they, they don't believe that you should have it and that, that it's a sin. And I said, well, you know, let me tell you something, brother. I want to tell you, I love you, and I would honor your platform requirement, and I would shave it off if I were invited to come and speak. But if the issue is you think I'm going to hell because I have a goatee or a mustache or a beard, then ain't no razor coming anywhere near it. Because I know better than that. Because my salvation is based on Christ alone, my faith in Him, and not whether I have a clean-shaven face or whether I have a beard down to my knees. It has nothing to do with any of that kind of cultural stuff. Come on, somebody. Now, you just need to look around and realize there are folks in the room with tattoos and there are folks in the room with piercings and there are guys with longer hair and girls with short hair and all of that kind of stuff does not make one bit of difference. It doesn't make you holier than anybody else. It doesn't make you unholy more than anybody else. Get off of that legalistic, pharisaical nonsense so that we can get set free and be able to reach the community that God's called us to with the true light of the love of Jesus Christ. Come on, help me preach a little bit this morning. I love it. I read, began reading Eric Metaxas' book was just released the third of this month to coincide with the 500th anniversary. His book on Martin Luther and how one German monk changed the world. And in the prologue, as I read it, I I was just so captivated because it talked about in the 1930s when an African-American pastor, a Baptist pastor, went to Germany and visited Wittenberg. He was a pastor by the name of Michael King, and he had a son by the name of Michael King Jr., who was five years old at the time. And he visited Wittenberg, and he was so captivated and so moved by the influence of this man who withstood the power and the tyranny spoke truth to power to popes and to kings 
and literally became what was probably the very first revolutionary. And he began to empower generations after him. And this young black pastor from Atlanta, Georgia, was so moved by Martin Luther's story that Michael King came home and he legally changed his name to Martin Luther King and his son's name to Martin Luther King Jr. Because he felt like his son was called of God to be a revolutionary in his day. And don't you know he had some prophetic insight about what his boy was going to do. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. I started reading that in my living room this week and I got up and shouted around my... I was Jean Jean the dancing machine from the old gong show. Man, I was going, man, that guy 500 years later is still influencing and changing people's lives. That's what one man sold out to Jesus can do. You can be a world changer. Last point and I'm finished. Give me three minutes. The last point is that we're dead to the law, but now we're alive to God. He says, Paul says, but suppose we seek to be made right with God through faith in Christ and then we are found guilty because we have abandoned the law. Basically he's saying, you know what, if I put my faith in Jesus and get out here and just live willy-nilly, completely lawless, apart from the law of God, and then now because I end up in sin, does that mean that Christ led me into it? Is is that his fault? And he says, no, absolutely not. Because that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about... Grace is not an excuse to stay in sin, saints. Grace is the power to get free from it. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Verse 18, he says, Rather I am a sinner if I rebuild the old system of law that I already tore down. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me, so I died to the law. I stopped trying to keep all its requirements so that I might live for God. Hear it now. My old self has been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Basically, he's saying, you know, you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but if you think, well, I'm just going to keep this on the side so I can earn my way to... Make God happy. I know that trusting Jesus got me to heaven, but now I've got to keep the law to stay saved. That's not Bible. We, we trust in Him to save us, and we trust in Him to live every day in this flesh, in this earthly body. The Bible belt gives us a good dose of substitution. Christ died for me. He is my substitute. He died in my stead. He was righteous, I'm unrighteous. He was just, I'm unjust. He's godly, I'm ungodly. He dies in my place instead of me. And I put my trust in Him and I'm thankful for Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. But that's not the whole story. There's another side of the coin. The other side of the coin is I now identify with Christ because I was crucified with Him. My old self that I should have buried in the waters of baptism and now I have a new self on the inside of me. It's Christ living inside of me. So often people never grow into just the very fundamental understanding of what it means to be in Christ, to be motivated and animated and driven by a whole new kind of desire because we are alive on the inside, not dead on the inside anymore, but alive with the Spirit of Christ, alive with a whole new kind of desire, alive with a desire to please God and walk with Jesus. Because the Bible says, if you love me, you will obey me. That's just that simple. It doesn't mean if you love me, you have to try to obey. If you really love God, you're going to walk to obey Him and love Him. Very simply this morning, 
as they bring the lights down. I want to close this message because this is the gospel right here. This is the power of the gospel. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. King James says, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. They're made new. The newer translation says, the old has gone, the new has come. Guess what? Listen, get this. When you trust in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you're the same old guy with just another chance. You remember when you were a kid and you had those little, it was like a little notebook almost, just a little hard piece of cardboard, and it had black wax on the back and a little piece of cellophane, and you'd write on it, and as you'd write on it, the cellophane would stick to the black wax, and you'd draw pictures, and you'd write things, and you'd pull the cellophane, and it would erase it. And sometimes people think salvation is basically God just pulling the cellophane up and giving you a clean slate. But no, that, that's not it at all. He's, he's given you a whole... You, you've graduated from a little wax background to where you've got a, a projector screen, a whole new kind of, of way of shining the light of God in your life. It's not the same old person with a second chance. You're a whole new kind of creation. And you need to renew your thinking as a believer. And this morning, if you've never crossed the line of faith and said, Jesus, save me, I trust you. That's offered to you today, not because you're good enough or because you work for it or you earn it or you deserve it in any kind of way. The Bible simply says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That's something you work for and earn. But the gift of God, everybody say the gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Nobody